solve real problems. If you can solve a real problem, regardless of your size, your scope, your sustainability, if you're solving a real problem in the marketplace, people will listen. Welcome to The Common Threads. During each episode, we'll travel through time to explore the childhoods, influences, and habits of the people behind some of the world's leading companies, movements, and ideas. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening app, or check us out at commonthreadsmedia.com. I'm your host, David Swain. Like many things born in Silicon Valley, you might say Strava, the favorite app of millions of athletes, is a happy accident. Today we sit down with Mark Ganey, co-founder of Strava, to talk about his roots on the soccer fields and tracks of Reno, Nevada, and what it took to go on to start a $10 billion company in his 20s. And of course, the happy accident that led to what's now a 30-year friendship with his co-founder, Michael Horvath. I thought it'd be cool to know where you grew up, influences you had as a kid. Yep. Uh, born in Denver, Colorado, but raised in Reno, Nevada. My dad's a general surgeon. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. I was the oldest of three. I got a younger brother who's two and a half years younger than me and a sister, same, kind of uh, so five years between us. You know, Reno's one of these funny places. Uh, it's called Biggest Little City in the World. I, I used to always joke there's two cities there. There's one that most people know, which is a very transient, high-density sort of, uh, it's a gaming town. But as soon as you get out of downtown, it's incredible. I mean, Reno, for anybody who likes the outdoors, I mean, starting in first grade, we had PE at the local ski resort. You know, they'd bus us off to Mount Rose Ski Resort, and we'd ski all winter long. My first summer jobs were Lake Tahoe, pumping gas and grinding mm-hmm. the bottoms of boats at a local marina. So for a kid who enjoyed being outdoors, playing soccer, that was really the sport of choice uh, up until high school when I switched over to cross country, but fantastic place. What drew your parents to Reno? It was, it was dad's job. Yeah, they, so they both grew up in the Bay Area. My dad's a San Francisco native, born and raised in the city, and my mom was on the peninsula, but um, he did his residency in Denver. And I think they fell in love with the Rockies. And so the opportunity to be in the mountains but closer to family was compelling. And there was an opportunity to come out with a partner and sort of take over someone's practice. Mm-hmm. So they're still there. They love it. So is that, is that where you found your love for the outdoors and sports through your parents? or? Yeah, maybe less so. My, it's not that my parents weren't active, but uh, I think they just... They were just willing to invest in ours, so in, in our activities. So whether it was making sure that we could, you know, join the local ski program early on, or you know, obviously supporting my my love for soccer as a kid and traveling all over the West Coast doing that, uh, they were always behind me there. I graduated from high school, and the graduation gift was a mountain bike. I had a choice. This was 1986. I could go to Australia to watch Dennis Connors regain the America's Cup, or I could have a mountain bike. And to this day, I'm not really sure why I chose one and not the other, but I did. And no regrets. That had a, a Richie Ascent mountain bike from 1986. It was great. Did you have a lot of extended family around in Reno, or was it? No. No, close-knit family. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd obviously come and visit extended family here in the Bay Area. But uh, no, you know, good friends growing yeah. up there. And it, kind of the nuclear family and a, a little bit of a... You know, what are the sitcoms from the 70s and 80s? We, we lived that. It was yeah. pretty good. So what about academics for you? I don't know how many kids from your school were going to Boston for 
It's funny, David. So the first thing, full disclosure, I was not applying to Harvard when I was a senior in high school. What happened was a very nice coach out there sent me a handwritten note in the fall of what would have been the fall of 1985. I'd done very well in cross country. Yeah. I'd won the state championship, so I'm a pretty good runner. And uh, some decent SAT scores. By no means right. a perfect score, but good. And so he wrote this note and said, hey, we saw your results and so forth. Have you ever considered Harvard? We'd love to introduce you to, the, to our program. And I laughed. I said, there's no way am I going to go, this kid from Reno to there, not even an interest. And it was my father who was like, you do not have to go. You don't have to get in, but you're going to be a decent right, person you just, and you're going to reply to this. If somebody writes you a note like that, you're going to reply back and you know, just fill out the application. And so I did, and, and lo and behold, got in and, and visited and figured what the heck, it was worth a shot. That's amazing. So did you run cross-country? So I was recruited to run cross-country. Yeah. I showed up with a stress fracture, mm-hmm. and so I was unable to run really my freshman year. And then a very long story short, in the process, I got recruited by the crew coaches. They were pretty clever back then. They would basically recruit from a lot of the other athletic programs. Yeah. So I got recruited over, and at that point... It was a pretty easy choice, just the opportunity to, to be in that boathouse with a national caliber team uh, and to learn a new sport, which I was intrigued by. Have you read Boys in the Boat? Yeah, I've, I've got Boys in the Boat on my bedside you table. Yeah. It's in there. There's a, That's my there's, only experience with rowing, but it, uh, I understand it's, it's impressive. It's, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's any book you can pick up about rowing. The one that I always recommend everybody is something called The, the Amateur by David yeah. Halberstam. Incredible read, and it'll turn anybody into a rower, at least want to be. And I understand boys in the boats the same. What got you into sports to the level where you were competing in high school? You know, I think part of it is I must have been literally born that way. Enjoying the competition and and seeing when you're kind of good at something and then wanting to keep pursuing it. So I love being on the soccer field. I love in on a team, good friends there and a travel. And then I think part of that soccer came the running. Mm-hmm. And I was pretty good during like the warm-ups or, you know, the, the mm-hmm. practices. Running and laps, I'd be the guy yeah. who was at the front and running those laps. And so, and then I went to Reno High School. I mean, Reno High School wasn't the only high school that was there. There were probably half a dozen high schools in Reno at the time. But I happened to go to Reno High and just happened to enter that school right when we just had this incredible mix. I mean, we then won. The, I was there my sophomore year through senior year, really, and won the state championship as a team all three years, just dominated. Most of my competition was on my team. Uh, and so when you're living that six days a week uh, and you're literally racing in practice, it makes it pretty easy to go out and, and win races. So that that was what drove me. But I think it really was, you know, great coach. I still remember to this day, Ray Hayes and Peter Duffy were my high school coaches that – inspired us and were good runners in their own right. Yeah, just being surrounded by a bunch of other guys who any given day they could kick my butt. Yeah. Do you keep in touch with any of them? No, I've lost touch with most of the guys. Uh, one of one of my guys who was in my class was then in my wedding years ago and, and we've stayed close. And ironically, it's through Strava now that I have more interaction with him. Yeah. Like we'll, we'll give kudos to each other on a fairly frequent basis. Once I went off to college and then uh, after graduating in 1990, there was a brief period of time where I was back in Reno and I was trying to figure out what was going to be next. And uh, it was pretty clear it was going to be hard for me to build a career there. So I, I left Reno. And it's not that I don't enjoy going back to visit, but I just don't have the connections. Anymore. Yeah. And so what did you study at Harvard? Technically, my degree, I think, says I graduated with a degree in general studies. And with the, so technically, I 
had enough uh, credits in art history yeah. or fine arts is what they call it at Harvard. So I studied art history and it took me a while to get to that point. Um, I started as a history major, but uh, art history is great for three things. One, it's an amazing way to learn history. Yeah. Don't take me to a museum. Don't ask me to sort of identify an artist. I can't do that. But it's a great way to learn about history through mm -hmm. the eyes of an artist at the time. So that was the academic side to it. And when you're a rower, it turns out that most of our history classes are taught in the dark uh, with a slideshow. And so if you have to find 45 minutes to snooze and yeah. still get your class <laughs> attendance, you can actually pull it off in our history pretty well. Yeah. So my degree should say crew because that's yeah. where I spent the vast majority of my time. Yeah. What did you learn in crew that you applied through your career? So many. I am being sincere when I say my degree yeah. should say crew, and I, I can't begin to tell you how valuable that experience was. From the friendships that developed there that have become business partnerships, lifelong, we'll talk about Michael, I'm sure. I mean, he's been my business yeah. partner now for 25 years. Uh, he was on the crew team. He was on the crew team. Oh, he was wow. two years ahead of me. Yeah. yeah, so Michael was class of 88. I was 90, yeah. and, and that, that particular group of class of 88 really took me under their wing. Great friends with a number of guys there. So there's that element to it. There's just the there's just an intense work ethic that's hard to describe. I mean, I think at one point somebody did the calculations, the number of hours that we put in training for the very few minutes that we actually race in the spring season, because these are 2,000 meters long and six-minute races, and, and you only have maybe, maybe a half dozen races for your season, yet you train from the minute you get to school in the fall through the winter and, and into the spring. So... You have to do it for some reason other than just the race and really appreciating the journey. Teamwork. It's hard to describe. Everybody thinks of rowing as somewhat of an individual sport, but you have to figure out how to mix in effectively with eight other people, with seven other rowers and a cox. And when you have that right, there's no powerful feeling. It's, it's, we call it swing, which is literally the physical movement of the boat. And when all eight oarsmen are in sync and that coxswain has you going in the right direction, it's this incredible feeling of the boat lifting and, and sort of sinking into the water. It's, it's, there just isn't anything like it. When it's off, it's miserable. Like, you, you, like you'll get injured. Uh, yeah. People get thrown out of the boat called crabs or you'll, you'll injure your hands on, on the oar. So there's a fine line between um, perfection and, and disaster. Yeah, you can apply all these things uh, later on. I mean, a lot of people talk about the idea of flow, like when you're totally in the moment. That sounds exactly Very like that. And we had a physical manifestation yeah, of it. Yeah. So you went from that, from your career in rowing, into a few years later starting a company that was a pretty big deal in the dot-com era. How did that happen? So as I'm graduating, I had not applied for any jobs. I wasn't thinking about working. I wanted to continue rowing, uh, lightweights. So I was at Harvard, there's lightweights and there's heavyweights in rowing, or we call them fat weights. But that's, uh, lightweights had just been um, added to the Olympics. First opportunity for lightweights was gonna be in 92, I think in Barcelona. And so there, I had dreams of, ooh, could I make one of those lightweight teams? Uh, and I had a great coach, a guy named Charlie Butt at Harvard, who now actually heads the whole program. Uh, so the idea was to graduate and come back and begin training with him and some other club programs and, and see if I had a shot at that. Murphy's Law, I was home for two weeks after graduation prior to going back to, to start my summer training. And I blew out my back on a rowing machine in the middle of Reno, in the middle of the desert. Uh, there is no rowing going on and yet I, somehow I managed to blow out my back. 
And that led to about a nine-month period, a little bit of a reckoning, because it was not at all clear that I was really going to be able to come back to rowing. I was now living at home with my parents, and you know, I think that that was never really the deal. Uh, you know, you're going to graduate from Harvard with a degree, and you should go off and, and find your adult life. Uh, they were kind enough to let me sort of figure that out, but pretty quickly it was clear that I wasn't going to be rowing again, and, and I needed to sort of move on to a chapter. And so I sent resumes, frankly, across the country. Uh, and I still, to this day, have, I have a, this shoebox full of all the rejection letters. Uh, it's something, I, I, I have this funny way of keeping all the rejections in my life, whether it's venture guys who turn us down or it's people who never gave me jobs. Um, keeps me humble. And that's a, it was a big stack. But I did manage to get a job offer here in the Bay Area uh, at a funny firm called TA Associates, uh, now a, a highly respected private equity firm. And uh, I was hired to dial for deals, to basically mm-hmm. call entrepreneurs looking for investment opportunities. Uh, they had a very unique model, David, in that they like to go find established, entrepreneurially owned, growing, profitable businesses. Mm-hmm. The exact opposite thing that you actually find in Silicon Valley. So it was why I had a job. I'd, I'd show up on a Monday morning with 50 newspapers on my desk. This is pre-internet. So you'd get all these newspapers and I'd pull all the want ads out of those Sunday papers from around the country. And if you were hiring in Dubuque, Iowa, or Phoenix, Arizona, I was calling you and trying to get the owner or the CEO on the phone to tell me about their business. And I did that for almost five years. I mean, it was a great job. Did you have any fun wins through that? Of the Oh, a couple wins and a couple where yeah. we should have and we didn't do it. Yeah. So. Uh, and the firm did very well and had some big wins. The ones that I were involved with were, would be some tech companies that probably very few people would know. Yeah. Companies like OnTrack and Diamond, uh, which were involved in the video space. But I had uh, probably one of the best calls and ultimately visits we ever had. I got on the phone and I called Jim Gennard, who was the founder of Oakley uh, Sunglasses, and uh, got him on the phone. He starts telling me his story. And to this day, he is absolutely, he doesn't even know this probably, but he is one of my key mentors in life. Uh, what we learned from him over a two or three month process is we, we really worked hard to see if there was an investment opportunity was just a lot of the lessons I just told you about in crew. Yeah. I mean, just sort of the grit and determination and persistence. And I, I often refer to them now as the three P's, patience, persistence, and perspective. And yeah. Jim had this amazing story. I mean, he was reselling motorcycle hand grips out of a Volkswagen van back in like the, I don't know, late seventies, early eighties, uh, out in the Baja Desert. And he sees all these guys coming in on their motorcycles with these cracked goggles. And he's like, there's gotta be a better way. And you know, long story short, he ends up with this amazing business that at the time we talked to him, he had better margins than any software company. That business was minting money. But the way he did it was he brought everything in-house. Sunglass industry was this very sort of distributed parts from everywhere. And then people would put them together. He brought everything in-house. He did from design through manufacturing delivery maniacal about the quality, maniacal about his distribution. And even when I knew what it cost to actually manufacture a pair of sunglasses versus what he sold them, I had no problem paying these exorbitant rates at the time for a pair of sunglasses because it was that good. It was a great product. Yeah, I caught the bug. Really what happened was after four and a half years there, I caught the bug to be an entrepreneur. I sort of looked at life where I was only recently married at the time. And it was one of these things where Basically, very little to lose and everything to gain. In the worst case scenario, I'd have a, a good story for a business school application. Uh, and if that's the worst case, then the best case is I'll, I'll start something that I'm, 
that uh, will sustain my family, which was kind of the mission, just enough to put food yeah. on the table and pay the rent. That's how we did it. And that was late 95. So that's right as Netscape was going public and that first wave of internet companies yeah. is starting to surface. Was that you and Michael from the beginning? So Michael's trajectory a little different. When he graduated in 88, he had studied economics. He actually went off and got his PhD in economics from Northwestern, then ended up out here in the Bay Area as a professor of macroeconomics at Stanford. So he was teaching at the time while I was working at TA Associates. It's one part joke, but one part truth. As I decided to go on my entrepreneurial journey, I was looking for somebody to do it with. You and I have talked about yeah. this, how lonely entrepreneurship yeah. can become. So I was looking for a partner, a co-founder. And there's a number of guys who know that I tried to recruit them that they did not pull the trigger. They were probably wise, uh, but they didn't do it. But Michael was somebody who was willing to sit with me and spend time. He also had an office at Stanford, which at the time was one of the few places that had decent internet connection. So I used to always joke, yeah, the reason he's my partner is because he had a great internet connection. But the other thing about it was that he was such a good partner because he was kind of the yin to my yang. I mean, you're not going to meet a more ethical person. You're not going to meet a person who's more humble, uh, who works harder. And he also just understands things about business that, frankly, I don't. And yeah. so that, that worked out really well. Yeah, so when we started Kana together, he, he stayed in academia. Uh, he was busy raising a family. He and Anna had four children in a pretty short period of time. And then he found himself, largely for family reasons, leaving the Bay Area, staying in academia, and ultimately ending up in Hanover, New Hampshire, where he taught entrepreneurship at the business school there mm -hmm. at Dartmouth, but was always my co-founder and, and engaged at Kana. Yeah. Yeah. So we could do a whole interview on Kana, but what are the, uh, just as a 26-year-old launching a company that becomes... Over a thousand employees. At yeah, when I left in the summer of two thousand, we had about twelve hundred employees. Yeah. It was good business. I mean, yeah. It was good business. We were generating hundreds of millions in revenue. But uh, yeah, yeah, it was also it was also no, definitely was, during that period. Yeah, was, that first dot com boom was pretty unique. What did you learn during that period that allowed you to go on and do what you've done with Strava? Well, the power of the team. You know, yeah. we talked about how much fun I had on the team at Harvard and on the crew team. And, and I didn't appreciate it at the time until later when I really got involved in other businesses. I was incredibly fortunate that the people were willing to come and join me on the ride. And this isn't just Michael, my co-founder, but Paul Holland ran sales for us. He's now a partner at Foundation Capital and has been very successful there. Mike Wolf ran engineering for us, has been a world-class entrepreneur, has had two major wins since doing Kana. I could keep going. Yeah. Uh, guys like Bill Phelps who ran services and, and others that just were really a critical group that happened to come together and, and bought into the vision of what we were trying to do. And that's what makes or breaks any company. I don't care whether it's a software business or you're manufacturing paper clips or soccer balls or, or a restaurant. It's all about the people you bring together and, and really lucky that, yeah. that that group was willing to come together when it did. So that to me was a huge takeaway as we've thought about building Strava, thinking about the people that we take a lot of time to bring people on board. But I think it pays dividends because we generally... We feel really good about yeah. who we do bring in. Going back to the three Ps, when I first met you and we were talking about Strava, one of the things I noticed that's oftentimes rare in the Valley is the word patience. And I think your patience and deliberateness with building the Strava brand and community, like, is that like a yeah. philosophy you have? Where did it come from? So a lot of companies have, it's almost the complete opposite, so. And I think we face a constant tension at yeah. Strava that we're, trust me, uh, 
not that it's been a battle of wills, but I understand the need to move fast, break right. things, to be willing to, you know, don't seek out perfection. Quick side note, the three Ps used to have perfection. Mm. used to be patience, persistence, perfection. Yeah. And we threw it out. I threw it out because I realized perfection was leading to a whole bunch of bad behavior yeah. that we don't want. We, don't, we, we do want to experiment. We want to fail fast yeah. and so forth. So perspective was all about let's keep things in perspective as, as we try to move it forward. So for me, patience isn't necessarily around speed. But just an acknowledgement that it's that old adage, you know, the best things in life, they don't come easy. You know, if we fast forward to Strava, like, you know, for instance, to this day, sometimes I'll hear, oh, the clever little cycling company. And you can go look at our early business plans and so forth. We had a go to market strategy that said we're going to focus somewhat maniacally on the cycling community. But don't confuse go to market with vision. Our vision will always how can we support the global community of athletes, regardless of what sport they're participating in? Because there's a universal language and there's a universal set of needs that all athletes have. We just needed to focus early to develop market leadership, develop a presence out there so that we could be in a place to then continue to support more and more people. And we took a lot of our cues. If you go look at the great brands that Michael and I admired and, and sort of set out to see if we could go do something similar, those are not brands that were built overnight. Yeah. In fact, Key takeaway from the, the dot-com era, that sort of Internet 1.0, there used to be this funny phrase that, ah, oh, yeah, what a rocket ship. And I used to remind everybody, yeah, and what happens to rocket ships once they run out of fuel? The trajectory tends to be straight up and straight down. So in Strava's case, at the risk of not going fast enough, if we can build a trajectory that feels sustainable over a long period of time, you end up at the same altitude. Mm -hmm. But now you've got just incredible you hit, lasting You hit value. swing. Yeah, yeah, you find swing. Yeah. That's right. You know, one of the other things I've heard you talk about with Strava is, and I think comes through and what I've seen of you as like a leader is like just authenticity. Where did that come from? So that word gets used a lot. Yeah. Uh, and I know it can be abused. At Strava, we've literally put it on a coin. I mean, authenticity is one of the, it's one of the five core values inside mm -hmm. the business. There's an A, a B, and three Cs, and that A stands for authenticity. And where it comes from is kind of a simple thesis, which is, Let's go build for our customer. If we're clear who our customer is and we can understand their needs, even if you're a raw startup, you can be successful. I'll take it all the way back to my days working at TA Associates. There were two key takeaways that I got. And ironically, the one from entrepreneurs was about pursuing things you're genuinely interested in. Because the theory being that, hey, you're going to be doing this 24-7, 365 days a year. It might as well be something you you genuinely are passionate about. Otherwise, it's a really hard slog. So I took that to heart. And part of why we ended up at Strava in the middle of a sports business was just my passion for, yeah. for being active. The partners I worked for, even though they were venture investors and not entrepreneurs, they gave me another piece of really important advice, which was solve real problems, which in some ways I would sort of equate to authenticity in business, mm -hmm. which is if you can solve a real problem, regardless of your size, your scope, your sustainability, if you're solving a real problem in the marketplace, people will listen. And so I think for Strava, that authenticity, you know, I can go back to our roots around serving cyclists. Michael or I, neither of us are particularly good cyclists. That's not our background and so forth. You heard running and rowing and so forth. I love to ride my bikes. I love to ride in the dirt. But what we really found was by going out and talking to the cycling community, we could be very focused. We could find those individuals who had the passion and sort of understand their needs and in doing so really start to tailor an experience that was unique to them. 
in Strava that manifests itself in everything from taking care of things like power and wattage, which was just this whole language that very few people are familiar with, but for cyclists is really important, to things like identifying climbs automatically, because it turns out cyclists love climbs. And cyclists, they know every hill that they do and, and every grade that they're on. And so building that into the experience and being authentic with them. Did you have a core group of, who were those early users that were giving you that feedback? So uh, we did. I mean, I can name the very first guy who was ever on Strava. His name was David Belden as, as sort of the, the commercial customer. He's still here in the Valley. I believe he still works at Google. He's a great guy. That's the other thing. We have tens of millions of people on Strava today. I think we add we add a million people every 30 to 40 days. But I remember the first 10 that we put on Strava and the first, you know, the first 15, the first 20. And uh, yeah, they were buddies of mine that had worked with me at Kana. They were uh, friends in the in the venture community, a bunch of cyclists mm-hmm. in the venture community. So we got them involved. Beggars can be choosers. <laughs> if we can find a cyclist willing to listen to the story and, and willing to experiment, then we'll yeah. bring them on. There was a great piece of advice, David, um, I got long ago from actually a classmate of mine from Harvard. We were talking about Strava one day while sitting in a Starbucks, and she made a great observation. She said, you know, I talked to way too many entrepreneurs where when I ask them about who their customer is, they'll say, well, look, here. I mean, the beauty is anybody would, would have a need. So anybody sitting in the Starbucks could be a potential customer. And I had the exact opposite. When she asked me, well, who's your customer? I said, see those four guys sitting over there in Lycra with their bikes parked outside the window? That's my customer. And her eyes lit up because she says, that kind of focus is right. actually, now you can go have a conversation with them. Whereas if you try to have a conversation with every person inside of Starbucks, right. you're going to get you know, 75 different responses to something. So I think that that authenticity, it, it's pretty critical for the early stages. One of the things I, I'd like to talk about is, you know, you've been through a couple of startups, you've, you've got your two sons. What do you go to ground yourself? How do you have the self-awareness to know when you want to do something different or to shift something? So I'm probably the worst person to even ask this question because I this is one where I'd say I haven't, I definitely am not successful at it. I've had my own strategies. I, I would uh, refer to the fact that I think my balance has come in huge chunks. I tend to obsess in some ways in one area, I tend to do well when I'm very focused on one thing and that comes at the detriment to other things. <laughs> whether that's personal relationships, whether that's uh, you know raising my kids or, or the company uh, and what I'm focused on. So when I tend to focus and I tend to focus on one thing, but I know I can only do it for such for yeah. an X period of time. Uh, and that's been my strategy. Others, I've, I admire those and I've studied some of the other entrepreneurs who've really figured out a way to be much more balanced on a regular basis than I have. That being said, two different experiences. When I was with Kana, it was, I was newly married. Lisa was, uh, she'd come from an entrepreneur family in her own right, so she sort of felt like she knew what she was getting into. I don't think either of us expected that Kana was gonna do what it did and it became all consuming. But we had very few obligations in life. It was just the two of us and uh, there weren't kids involved. I didn't have a lot of other obligations in life. I wasn't sitting on seven other boards. So it was manageable. You fast forward to Strava, a very different situation. Single parent yeah. and you know, two boys at the time we were starting we were seven or eight years old. You know, theoretically, I was pretty confident that I could manage my single parent duties along with the startup. I think the problem that happens is with time you forget all the bad and you only remember the good. I'd forgotten just how hard startups are and how all consuming they can be. 
And Strava did that. Strava sort of took over again. The thing I refer to now is uh, the boys will even joke with me. Uh, I call it sob disease. It used to be cob disease. Now it's sob disease. It's Strava on the brain. And there many an evening when I'd be sitting there with the boys at dinner, we're sitting there trying to have a conversation. I'm literally asking them about their day. And they're telling me how the day is going, what's going on, and I can't You're hear them. It. I'm not hearing it. Uh, and I mean, the first, I own that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I decided at Strava was, let's, we see a business that we think is only scratching the surface and we want to keep building it for yeah. the next 20 years. But something that I needed to personally change was leadership. So that bring a CEO in who has the capacity, yeah. has the uh, ability to really have both feet in 24-7. And it has afforded me just the luxury, frankly, of being present for yeah. Jake and Charlie. What are some of the traditions or things that you've brought to your boys that you either learned from your parents or that you've tried to instill mm-hmm. on your own? Ooh, we well, you, haven't, you haven't had a chance to meet them yeah. yet, so but but yeah. I got a good compliment just yesterday that that it's like all right things are working. So they met uh, they met somebody else that happens to be associated with Strava, and uh, boys came in. This was again a Saturday afternoon, and what the gentleman said afterwards was, "Boy, each of those boys shook my hand like they meant it. And they looked <laughs> me in the eye." So that was good because I can tell you that came directly from my father. <laughs> so that that you know, what's the old thing? The nut doesn't fall far yeah. from the tree. We spent a lot of time talking about personal passions. You know, it, it's, um, I got to be a kid growing up in Reno. I mean, I remember spending afternoons on my little BMX bike or with the soccer ball, with the football and playing with kids. And kids don't get to do that as much anymore. So what we spend a lot of time here at the house talking about is where, do, where are your interests? How can I help support those interests? And, and frankly, as two sophomores in high school, they're starting to talk about college. And we try to get away from the college discussion and more around, look, Let's figure out what you're interested in, and that'll lead to whatever the next chapter is. And I think I owe that again to my, this is where my parents were great. They weren't necessarily athletes, but they pursued, they allowed me to pursue that passion. What I saw in my father as a surgeon was somebody who was incredibly dedicated to his patients, to his work. Uh, You never saw him complain about having to get up at 3 a.m. in the morning and go take care of somebody. That was just the job. So, yeah, hopefully some of that stuff's going on. So the lesson for today, go out and kick the ball, play in the dirt and follow your passion. And when you find a good friend and business partner, stick with them. Thanks to Mark for joining the show. Thanks for listening to our show this week. If you want to find out more or give us your feedback, go to commonthreadsmedia.com or leave us a comment on Instagram or Facebook. You can subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thanks to Alicia Barrett, who edited the show. You've been listening to The Common Threads from Common Threads Media.